Well, you're already there, perhaps. I'm going to turn in my Bible now to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to examine together uh, verses 1 through 11, which is different than what's in the, in the bulletin. Um, and we'll look next week at Jesus's entrance into the temple. But this morning we examine his entrance into the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to read God's word beginning in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, what a privilege it has been these past couple years to to examine together the gospel of Matthew and the birth and the life and ministry of our Lord And now this morning, this Lord's Day, we embark upon a study of the remainder of this gospel, which focuses on the last week of our Lord before he was crucified. We ask as we start this study, we pray that your Holy Spirit will move powerfully in us to stir our love and our affection for Jesus anew. We ask that this summer, as we see all kinds of life, that you would come and till the soil of our hearts, plant seed of your word, water it with your grace, and by your spirit, cause the, your seed of your word to bloom and to blossom and to bear the fruit of new love for Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this is a significant moment in our study of the Gospel of Matthew as we come now to the final week, the week that all of his ministry has been pointing towards. This is going to be a time in which together we examine what Jesus has been saying to his disciples repeatedly, that he is going to go to Jerusalem, that he is going to suffer, that he is going to even die. And that he's going to be raised. We come now to that study. 
And in the Gospel of Matthew, it begins with his entry into Jerusalem. In my Bible, and perhaps in your Bible, there's a title over this section. It says, The Triumphal Entry. And that's placed there. That's what this is commonly known as, and and I have no problem with that title. Only, I would remind you that, again, the titles to those paragraphs, it's motorcycle season. Um, (laughs) But... I'm from Loudoun, so I, I guess that's, that's good training. God had that in my boyhood so that I'd be prepared to preach over motorcycles. Um, triumphal entry. Um, I just remind you, it's not original. There's nothing perhaps wrong with it. But it's not as simple as that, is it? In some sense, it is a triumph in that the king is finally entering into the city. But from many other appearances, it could be like, the entry of failure. And so our job this morning is to understand this significant moment in the ministry of our Lord. And in order to do that, our work this morning is primarily getting a sense of the Old Testament prophetic um, looking forward to this moment. We're going to examine our Lord and see his arrival and his riding on the colt. But our our real job is, in some sense, to try to familiarize ourselves a little bit with all of the prophecies. Not all of them, but that, that prophetic longing for the coming of the king. Because it's only as we understand that longing that we understand something of this moment. Think about it. A descendant of King David has not sat on the throne in Jerusalem since the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. In other words, a descendant of David has not sat on the throne of David in Jerusalem for over 600 years. Since that time recorded in Jeremiah 52, verse 11, you don't need to turn there. I'm probably going to turn to a few Old Testament passages this morning quickly that you may not have time to follow me. It says there in Jeremiah 52 that King Zedekiah, the last king to sit on the throne, that the king of Babylon blinded the eyes of Zedekiah. The king of Babylon bound him with bronze fetters, brought him to Babylon, and put him in prison until the day of his death. That was the last time there was a king in Jerusalem. And yet, God had made a solemn, irrevocable, unilateral promise, a covenant to and with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God said to David, without any qualification, David Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Yahweh, the Lord God, had promised, covenanted with David that he would have a descendant who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem forever. That was the promise of the Old Testament, that though God had judged the nation of Israel in the north, Judah in the south, 
that though Jerusalem had been overthrown by a foreign power and had been ruled over ever since, largely ever since, though a, a king uh, had not sat on the throne for 600 years, the prophecies of the, the God's word through the prophets all promised that one day God would send his king, a descendant of David, who would come to Jerusalem. And so, passages like Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, you, you can turn there if you will. This is so important, and this is quoted in Matthew chapter 21. Partly, and this is a bit of an important uh, interpretive principle for you, Usually, most often in the Gospels, especially, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew is referencing just a part of an Old Testament verse or passage, he's not only just quoting that verse, he's alluding to all that's around that prophecy. And the Jews who originally would have likely have heard this Gospel they would have been so familiar with some of these messianic passages that when Matthew alludes to just a portion of, for example, Zechariah, there are Jewish men and women who are hearing the gospel of Matthew for the first time or reading it, and they know the whole passage. They understand that Matthew's not only just alluding to a snippet, he's not cutting and pasting, but he's alluding to the whole tenor and the whole anticipation of that Old Testament prophecy. And in Zechariah chapter 9, remember by this time, by Zechariah, the, the, the temple has been rebuilt, but, but Jerusalem knows nothing of its former glory. The nation is still ruled over by a foreign power, and there is prophecy of more trouble and more woes to come. God had told Daniel that there would be one evil kingdom after another, one world power after another that would dominate the world and God's people of Israel until finally one day the promised one would come. And so in Zechariah 9 verse 9, Zion, the daughter of Zion, this is Zion's another name for Jerusalem. The daughter of Zion is its, its populace, its people, its citizenry. And Zion is is representative as the capital city of Judah, of the people of God. And so rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is the anticipation. The king will come. It's been over 600 years. And perhaps there's, for some people, they've become um, like liberal Protestants in our area, you know, uh, whether it be Congregational Episcopalian or Baptist or whatever the case may be, you know, they, they, they just go to church and, you know, they don't really believe any of the stuff, but, you know, it's, it's good still to be a part of religion and, and all that. And, and perhaps there were some Jews likely in that day. In fact, the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, were, were kind of in that liberal kind of mindset that we don't really actually believe any of this stuff. We don't actually believe in a resurrection, but religion's good for us. So, will engage in it. So there's probably some people who don't believe that the king is actually coming, but there's a larger group that still believes the prophecies, and they understand and they're anticipating that one day their king is coming to them. The king is coming. 
And Matthew chapter 21 records this expectation fulfilled. Jesus is the promised one. He is the descendant of David appointed by God to rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem over Israel and the whole world. Jesus is the king of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not just any city. And by today's standards, it wasn't a city at all. It was more of a town. But Jerusalem is not just any city. It is according to Psalm 48, the holy mountain, verse 1, the city of our God. Jerusalem, according to Psalm 48, verse 2, is beautiful in elevation. The city is set up on a a location. It's uh, about uh, 3,000 feet up, nearly. It's just on a prominent spot overlooking the valleys in the area. It's beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth. Let me ask you this morning, is Jerusalem this morning the joy of the whole earth? No, but it's in the news Always, almost. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. Psalm 48, verse 2, the city of the great king. The city of the great king. This is Jerusalem. It is the city of the great king. And the Zion has been without her king for over six hundred years she has been ruled over she has been oppressed at this time by the Romans who think nothing of stopping a revolt by hanging up the citizenry on crucifixes as you enter crosses rather as you enter into Jerusalem and as you leave Jerusalem a brutal kingdom Rome city has been without her king and the king is coming in the remainder of our time I want to look together at the king's purpose the king's approach the king's reception and fourthly the king's identity his purpose his approach his reception and his identity his purpose Why is Jesus entering into Jerusalem? His purpose is different than his disciples. If he is to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, which, make no mistake, is his aim. It needs to be clarified. We've, in our day, um, in so much bad teaching... Jesus has been become no more than a, a moral example. He's, he's a guy who cares about people who are needy. And that's true. We've just seen that in his healing of the blind men. There's no one as caring and as loving and as gentle as he is. But in our day, particularly in evangelicalism, like liberal Protestantism of the previous century, 
we have a diminishing of the regal, holy, authoritative intent of Jesus as king. And make no mistake, Jesus has every intention of fulfilling the prophecies because that is who he is. He is the Son of God incarnate, sent by the Father, born of a descendant of David. He is going to have that throne and he is going to rule, and he is going to rule not only over Jerusalem, not only over Israel, but he is going to rule over the whole earth. That's his intent. He is humble, and that's one of the things we see. But do not think in his humility that for him, he has this attitude of, well, I'll come to Jerusalem, we'll see how things work out, and, you know, if I get the throne bonus. (laughs) No. He is the king, he is the descendant of David, and he is going to conquer, and he is going to rule. And we need to reckon with that this morning, every one of us, that that is the trajectory of history. Count on it. That's the way it's going to be. Jesus sitting on the throne in Jerusalem ruling over the whole earth. That is his ultimate long-term purpose. But as of this moment, if Jesus is to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, he knows he must first save his people, not from the Romans, but from their sins. Their sins and the evil one who leads them into temptation, their sins because it is their sins that got them in this situation in the first place. It was their sin, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Zion, the people of Israel and Judah. It was their sin that brought down upon them the wrath of God that decimated them, that scattered them, that crushed the city and turned it into rubble. Their real problem is not the Romans. Their real problem is not the Herods. Their real problem is their sin against God. This is his purpose in entering Jerusalem, to save his people from their sins. This is what the angel told his father, Joseph. This is why he was to be called Jesus or Joshua, That's what Jesus is. You remember Joshua? Joshua means Yahweh saves. And they need salvation. Not from the Canaanites, not from the Amalekites, not from the Jebusites, not from the Hittites, not from the Babylonians, not from the Assyrians, not from the Romans. They need salvation from their sins. That's his intent. And this is what he has told his disciples repeatedly. Again, I I encourage you to go back to chapter 20 of Matthew in verse 18 and 19. I'm going to read these verses again. I've already alluded to them, but let's read them again. He takes his disciples aside as they're going to Jerusalem, and he says to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. 
and on the third day he will be raised up. That is why he is going to Jerusalem. That is his purpose. After three years of ministry, of preaching the good news of the kingdom at hand, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and commence his sin-bearing, sin-atoning work. He knows and understands this. He knows exactly what lies ahead in this week. He knows what he's going to face. Scripture must be fulfilled. This is his holy purpose, to save his people from their sins. Secondly, this morning, let's consider his approach. Physically, geographically, his approach is is somewhat from the south of Jerusalem, southeast in in the place called Bethpage. They're not actually 100% sure they know where this little village was, but it's just outside Jerusalem. It's like a, just like a little, um, yeah, a little enclave, a little, a little spot outside of town. We know here in New England that we have, we may have a town, but you've got different parts of the town in its history. You've got what used to be a little village or a little place in in your town. This is what Bethpage is. And he comes past the Mount of Olives. And think of the significance of this. The prophecy of Zechariah is that one day the Messiah will come and set his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount will be split and he will save and rescue his people. I mean, all around Jesus is the the clear reminder of the fullness of his work, of what, is, what lies ahead. He approaches from the south, and he is surrounded by pilgrims. This is, this is the week of Passover, and there are estimated some possibly up to two million. Think of it. This, this relatively small city, this small town, is absolutely flooded with visitors. And ancient historians estimate that there were some two million men, women, boys, and girls, and then all of the lambs that would be slaughtered. So so the city is absolutely jam-packed, and all of the roads going into the city are packed with pilgrims, Jews from the immediate area, Jews far and wide who are gathering together for the festival to worship God and to celebrate the Day of Atonement. His approach is from Bethpage in the south on a busy day. But his approach is unique in that uh, we have some details here. He says to his disciples, he gives them, he gives them commands to go into the village and to find there, verse 2, a donkey, a donkey, a mother donkey, and a colt with her. It gives very specific instructions. And one of the aspects of his approach that we'll learn here is that Jesus is in command. He is not a victim. He is not being drawn into Jerusalem as a trap. 
He is going as the king with full authority and is orchestrating every detail. He is not only the king, he is the sovereign king, son of the sovereign God. And so he commands his disciples, two of them, to go. And he tells them exactly what they're going to find. He not only tells them they're going to find a a donkey and her colt, he tells them that they are to, they will be asked. And if they are asked, verse 3, they are to answer, the Lord has need of them. And Jesus knows that those who own the donkey and the colt are not going to say, take off or... (laughs) You know, what are you doing? You can't have those? No. Jesus knows uh, beforehand that they will give permission. Why does this happen? Verse 4 tells us it took place to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, the verses we've already read. Jesus is the king. And he is the king who is fulfilling every aspect of every prophecy that was made concerning him. And so he must enter into Zion, into Jerusalem, not on this occasion on a war horse. You go fast forward to the end of the New Testament. Jesus is going to return on a war horse. But in this case, he is coming peacefully. And it's interesting, you remember David came back after being having to flee he came into Jerusalem on a colt on a donkey Solomon came in on a colt so this is an unprecedented this is symbolic of a king coming in peace not to dominate his people not to assert himself by force but it's actually an expression of his authority of his power and of his humility He's coming to his people, not to war with them, but to love them and to provide for them and to rescue them and to care for them and to save them. Jesus is coming in humility and peace. And oh, how he loves Jerusalem. The king loves his city. Not so much the geography, though I'm sure because of all the the significance of what took place there and what will take place there. Jesus has a special love for that place. But it's the people. It's his people, not only those Jews that would be saved, those who were residents of Zion, but Jerusalem is the capital city of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. Loved ones this morning, it's our city. It's our city. It's the people of Christ's city. Not right now, but it will be. It is the city of the great king. Jesus loves the city so much that over in the Gospel of Luke, and turn there with me if you would like to, we see on the way into the city, Jesus longs for the city of Jerusalem, the people. Luke 19, verse 41. This is on the same occasion that's being recorded. This is just a little before. When Jesus approached 
Jerusalem, Luke 19, verse 41, he saw the city and wept over it. He wept over it. He's surrounded on the road by all of these travelers, and as he approaches the city, there are tears streaming down our Lord's face. He weeps. This is a joyous day. Everybody else is happy. I mean, this is, you don't have many festivals necessarily, many times to come together to leave off work. This is going to be a time of seeing family, a time of eating good. For everyone else, this is a joyous occasion for Jesus. He's weeping. Not weeping for himself, mind you. He's not. He's not weeping for the pain and the suffering and the rejection he's about to experience. He is weeping for the city. Verse 41, wept over it, the city, saying, If you, Jerusalem, you, Zion, had known in this day, even you, the things which would make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. They won't see it. He's weeping because the fulfillment of all the promises, the descendant of David is there. He is arriving, but they won't see it. And this grieves him. For he knows that in their rejection of him, their Messiah, that that will bring upon them further judgment, further hardening, further wrath from God until the future day when Jesus will return again. So Jesus weeps. Some point on the way in, the disciples, back to Matthew 21, brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. This is, you know, to us, maybe not a big deal. We have lots of coats, maybe in our, uh, we have a spring coat, rain coat, a couple winter coats, all kinds of coats. But for these, remember, this is, they don't have many coats and to put their coat on the colt was a sign of honor. They, they wanted to give a place for their king to sit It was a place of honor. And not only did they spread their coats on the animals, verse 8, most of the crowd, this is a large crowd, going ahead of him, they spread their coats in the road. Now, from a distance, a donkey and her colt may seem, I don't know, rather lovable. Uh, Maybe stubborn animals, when they bray, they can be loud. But, While they may be interesting from afar, up close, some of you may know that they can make quite a mess. And uh, they tend to step in that mess. Donkeys don't, you know, place their feet carefully to avoid the messes that they make. So just think of it. This animal has been stepping in its own manure. It's on a dry, dirty, dusty road. And people are taking perfectly good, valuable coats, putting them on the road, cutting branches from trees and spreading them in the road for this animal to walk on. What is going on? Well, some of the crowd 
a good portion of the crowd that's coming to Jerusalem, they've heard of this Jesus. Maybe some of them have even witnessed his miracles. They've perhaps even witnessed more recently his healing of two blind men from the road to Jericho to Jerusalem. News, Jesus has been to Jerusalem before, but news has gone ahead of him. This is amazing. What this man has done is amazing. And so there are some who are caught up in the excitement and, and, and the festival and, the, and, the, and they're coming to Jerusalem after all. And, and the question has been circulating. It has been asked, is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David? And the Pharisees have been doing everything they can to, to dampen that, that sentiment. But here it's, it's kind of swelling up. There's kind of a, a growing sense that just maybe this Jesus from that no good nothing town Nazareth maybe he is the son of David and so they seek to honor him in a swell of emotion and and the putting down of the coats and the branches on the road is a way of of symbolizing this is our king we don't want him uh, to be dirtied by the dust we want to prepare the way for the Lord Not only did they put their coats and branches in the road, they were shouting, shouting. This is a loud scene. Boston has louder fans than anywhere else. I don't watch a lot of sports, but one I do when either the Red Sox, Patriots, or in this case the Celtics make it, Bruins. We all know, those that anybody watches, there is nowhere that has as loud fans as obnoxious New England and Boston. We're loud, and we get into it. And this is a loud scene. This is not Hosanna to the son of David. This is shouting by, remember, not saying that millions are on the scene, but this road is jam-packed. There are people on every side. It's like a packed parade. And people are caught up and they're shouting and they're wrestling through to try to get a view of this Jesus as he walks through. And they're shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're quoting, they're, they're shouting out from Psalm 118. It's somewhat tragic that the word Hosanna means save us. Save us. It's a, it's a term of praise, acknowledging that the one who's receiving this acclamation is able to save, that he's the king, that he's the one who is the, has the responsibility and the ability to save. But it's a tragic irony that the very people who cry out, save us, are in a few days going to cry out, crucify him, and by doing so, he is going to save them. He is going to save them, just not in the way that they think. Psalm 118, just a few verses before. The one that is shouted out 
by the crowd. The crowd's shouting out verses 25 and 26. Verses 22 and 23 of Psalm 118 says this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Wow. So when Matthew is alluding to this, he's again not only just reporting that this is what the crowd is shouting out. They happen to be quoting from Psalm 118. It is rich with irony. That just as this fickle crowd cries out, Hosanna, and they claim him to be the son of David, that they are at the same time going to reject him. So his approach, his purpose, is to save his people from their sins. His approach is one of authority and of humility and of love. Thirdly, and I've already moved ahead on to this point, his reception. Again, there are massive crowds and they are receiving him like he is their king. He is, they are receiving him as though he is uh, the king. And notice that they are claiming in verse 9 that he is the son of David. They are claiming and shouting out loud that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah. It's amazing. And it's difficult for us to comprehend how, how does this happen? How do you go from on Sunday... Or Monday, whichever day it was, Sunday or Monday. But as he comes into the city, how do the crowds, in large crowds, go from placing their coats in the road, spreading branches, acclaiming him as to be the Messiah, and then a few days later, crying out, crucify him. It's, it's a testimony not only to the fickleness of that crowd, but to the fickleness of our own hearts. I could do that. I don't know about you, but unfortunately I have that kind of sinful heart that one day could cry out, save me, O Lord, praise you, O Lord, and then a few days later, shout out, crucify him. This is the nature of our hearts. This is who we are. This is the sinful kind of people we are. This is why we need to be saved from our sins and our sinful nature. Fourthly and finally this morning, his identity. Who is this Jesus? When he enters Jerusalem, verse 10, all the city was stirred. This is like an earthquake, the, the terminology there. It's, it's like... It's like the whole city is being shaken. Think of it, millions of people. Word is getting to Pilate and to the Herod and to Herod and to Roman soldiers and to the Sadducees and Pharisees and high priests and and news is rippling through the city of what happened. This guy, Jesus of Nazareth, came in today riding on a colt. Like Zechariah chapter 9. And not only that, but crowds by the tens of thousands, tens of thousands, were shouting out, Hosanna, 
son of David. Who is this? This hasn't happened in a while. Who is this guy? And that is the question of the text. And is what Matthew is driving at. In a sense, this is the central question of the whole gospel. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is this? Well, it's very tragic and interesting that the very crowds who one moment called him the son of David, the Messiah, when they're asked maybe on a more personal level, apart from the hype, they're not so bold, are they, verse 11? They say, this is the, this is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Uh, they don't say in personal testimony, this is the son of David. When they're caught up with the crowd, they'll sing the worship chorus. They're all for it. Hosanna, yeah, okay, Jesus, son of God, sure. Asked in private, they do not confess him. He goes from being the Messiah to merely a prophet. And soon he'll go from being from being son of David to son to a prophet to being a criminal. It's a tragic entry. It may be a triumphal entry in the sense that Jesus is under command. Jesus is not backing off from the mission that the Father sent him to fulfill. But it is a tragic entry. Tragic because of the fickleness of the human sinful heart. And tragic because Zion, after more than 600 years, rejects her rightful king. We've considered various aspects of our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem this morning. But in closing, I want to just leave us with thinking about him. What he did for us. He's been ministering selflessly for three years. He's been proving that he is the son of God. He's been telling his disciples again and again what he's going to do. He's going to die. He's going to be raised. And yet none of them still embrace that. None of them understand it. He is utterly alone. Except for the communion he has with his Father by the Spirit, he is utterly alone. Yes, his disciples are around him but they are not really with him. This will become more evident at the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here we see our Lord, our King, entering into Jerusalem on our behalf, alone. And if you think of his weeping over Jerusalem because he knows their response, he knows what's going to happen. And 
think about he's virtually alone. He, he, he understands alone what he is going to do. He knows he's going to be rejected. He knows they're going to not only deny him, but they're actually going to hand him over. They're going to hand their king over to the foreign occupier and oppressor, Rome itself, Pilate. He knows this, and yet he's sitting on a donkey, on a colt, as he goes into the city in fulfillment of scriptures, and his people are actually praising him, and they're speaking the truth. And he still goes. He knows, he knows that their praise is not sincere. He knows that their praise will dissipate like the morning fog. And he's determined. And he goes in humility. Think of the humility. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of God. He is the descendant of David. He knows what's going on. He knows how he's going to be treated and rejected. And he still goes through with it. He doesn't call fire down from heaven upon them, which he could. He doesn't trample them under feet. He lovingly, humbly proceeds on his mission to save his people, to save us from our sins. And so in closing, there's only one application. Typically, when I preach, sometimes I'll share two, three, four observations or applications. There's only one this morning. There's just only one. Consider who your king is and what he has done for you. And love him. Worship him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're moved. We're moved by your courage and your determination to save us. We can't fathom the loneliness and the pain of those moments. The cruel irony that you were and are Zion's king. You are the son of David. And you were coming to save your people. And yet you had to listen to Hosanna Son, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And know that the same mouths that spoke those words would a few days later shout, crucify him. And we confess, Lord, that we are no different than those fickle sinners who one day praised you and then a few days later condemned you. Our hearts are the same woven from the same sinful cloth. 
we too, we too would and have rejected you. And so this morning we thank you for your purpose, for your mission, that you entered Jerusalem knowing full well what you were going to do for us. And we cannot express our gratitude that you went all the way to the cross and to the grave for us to save us from our wretched, damning sins so that we might be atoned for our sins, that we might be redeemed, and that we might be cleansed, brought into your kingdom to praise you. So receive our praise, our heart's praise this morning, Lord. There's no one like you. No one like you. No other king. And we know you're seated now at your Father's right hand, but all we long for that day when you're going to come to Jerusalem again. We'll be there. We can't wait to see it when we come with you. Until then, we pray, help us to be like you, courageous, and to love you as we ought, to represent you in this world. We ask this in your name. Amen.